Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Friday, September 16th, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I am here with Stacy and Brooke. We actually have Brooke in a romance-specific episode tonight. And not just any kind of romance, but historical romance. So we are going to talk about some excellent historicals for you. Um, Brooke is going to start us off followed by me and then Stacy. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the book bistro podcast at gmail.com. So my first book this evening is Circus of Wonders by Elizabeth McNeil. So our main character's name is Nell, or Nellie, and she lives in a small community or village. Um, I'm going to assume this book takes place in the 1800s. I can't give you an exact date, but um, she is kind of like an outcast or at least she feels that way because she has a lot of birthmarks that make these kind of make her look like kind of like leopard stripe, like leopard spots. So a lot of people kind of look at her and she doesn't really feel like she fits in. So her and her brother, they're the best of friends. She does things and he's always watching out for her. But she knows that her brother is about to kind of sit off and make a life for himself. Um, she is 19 and he is 20. And he has a wife. And she's pregnant. And she knows that they're going to ask her to come and live with them. Like right now, everyone lives with her father. Um, and she knows that her brother, Charlie, is always looking out for her. So she knows he's going to ask her to come live with him. And she doesn't feel that this is quite what she wants. Like, she knows that she can't just set out on her own. Like, they don't really have the money for her to do that. But she also doesn't want to be, like, just the auntie. Like, she doesn't, she wants a family of her own someday. So her and her brother, they go to this dance that's happening in the village. And kind of, like, on the sidelines, we're watching her father interacting with this circus um, ringmaster guy. His name is Jasper, um, Jasper Jupiter. 
And he has this traveling circus and he's always looking for like better things and things to make people come because he just wants to be like the best of everything. This is like very much the kind of the overarching theme kind of of the book is everyone just wants to be more than they than they are currently. Um, so her father ends up making this deal. Um, his father, her father is an alcoholic and he doesn't have any money. He's kind of run their family into the ground. So he makes a deal with Jasper um, and he sells Nell to him. So Jasper has decided that he thinks that Nell is going to be his next star. Um, he's going to call her the leopard girl and he has all these plans. So he kind of knocks her out with some, with something. I'm not quite sure what they give her, um, but they knock her out and then they steal her away and take her to the circus. So she's not very happy about this. She wants to get away, but as she kind of figures that there's nothing she can do about it right now, that she's kind of got to make the best of what's happening. And Jasper begins working on her, like her, um, what do you call it? Performance. And he has this whole thing set up for her. Like he makes these like mechanical wings for her that she's going to attach, get attached to like a balloon and she gets to hang and it looks like she's like flying and all these things and like she just as she's doing her performances she's starting to find a place for herself she realizes that this is what she wants she wants to stop living in the shadows and she wants to like become something like she feels like she's actually somewhere and while we're all doing this we also are starting to see a relationship that's building between her and toby toby is jasper's brother and Toby is very much in the shadow of her, his brother. Like he's always been in the shadow of his brother. He just wants his brother to always like, like him. He's always trying to like make him happy. And he's always trying to figure out a way to get out of the shadow. Um, there's a secret between Jasper and Toby. There's something that Toby did that now Jasper kind of holds over his head. And through the, throughout the story, we, we kind of get glimpses into what this is. And we learn by the end what it is. But I don't want to give it away. Um, I really, I loved the relationships between all the different characters. It was really interesting to meet a lot of the characters and to see how everyone had made a life for themselves and how they actually, like, they were where they wanted to be, at least at this point in time. Um, I did find that the book didn't quite go as far as I would have liked, um, in terms of the relationship between Toby and Nell, but also I felt like just in the story itself that it could have maybe went a little bit further. So this is Circus of Wonders and it's by Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth McNeil. And if you like books about circuses, and books about like historical times and circuses in those times. It was definitely interesting to see like how things worked because I didn't really, 
I hadn't really read any real books in this time period. So it was kind of neat to see how rudimentary a lot of things were, like just how he built, for example, the wings and how he oh, was going to get uh-huh. them to fly. This has been on my wish list for a while now. All right. So I have a theme tonight, as I sometimes do. So my four books this evening will all be queer historicals. So my first book is The Hellions Waltz. This is Feminine Pursuits, book three by Olivia Waite. These books are connected as a a series, but the characters do not actually relate. Um, So I think they're a series just because they are um, a group of female-female historical romances. Um, That's what I've gathered anyway. I I don't see any connection between any of the characters in this series. Therefore, it doesn't technically matter um, the order that you read them in. Yes. (laughs) So this is the story of Maddie and Sophie. Maddie is a swindler. Her family has grown up just kind of looking for easy money. And there's a part of her that isn't necessarily thrilled about this, but there's also a part of her that kind of sees, you know, this is how her family has become successful. And this is how she sort of gets back at the world for all of the injustice that she sees. So if you think of her as kind of like a a female Robin Hood, um, that, that might, might help. We also have Sophie. And Sophie's parents lost their family business several years before the story began. They owned a piano shop and it was taken from them by a con man in London. And so now they have moved to this kind of quieter English village and they are trying to make a new start. Sophie and Maddie meet. And immediately they are attracted to one another. However, Maddie is up to something. Sophie's pretty sure. She doesn't know what it is. But there's something in her that's kind of warning her that even though this woman is really attractive and she's very drawn to her, she something is telling her that like this is not a person that she should be spending time with. That something about this person is kind of dangerous. Maddie is working with a group of modistes and tailors, and they are trying to form a union of like, you know, clothing manufacturers. And she has come up with the perfect way to make this work, but the way is not necessarily honest. Now, she is concerned that Sophie is going to kind of dig in and figure out what she's doing. And so she decides that she's going to seduce her and hopefully keep her from uncovering the secret. But as they begin spending more time together and as this seduction turns into something more, Maddie starts to wonder, you know, is what she's been doing, is this worth losing what could possibly be like a good relationship for her? So this is The Hellion's Waltz. It is the third book in Olivia Waite's Feminine Pursuit series. And I think, you know, we don't see a lot of female-female historical romances. 
And I really loved several different things about this, but especially the sort of like enemies to lovers, like slow burn nature of the romance between Sophie and Maddie. I am definitely going to be getting this book. She has, um, did she write like a science fiction one or something? No, it's not a science fiction. It's a historical, but it's about, um, astronomers. Olivia Waite has done, uh, the lady's guide to celestial mechanics, which is the one that I've seen that. Yes. And then also the care and feeding of waspish widows, which is about a female. Oh, I saw that one too. Yes. So historical romance is my first love. Like I've, I've loved it for a long time. It was um, my very first romance I ever read was The Duchess by Jude Devereaux. So, you know, I've been reading these since um, the early 90s. But I've found in the last however many years, I don't love reading books that really focus on like the ton in London or the ton or however the hell you say it. And like, I, I don't love like all the ballrooms and the potted palms. And one thing that I've discovered in the last several years are a couple series of sort of like steampunk historical romances. And they are just everything to me. It's, it's the time period I love. And the thing I love about historical romance is you can sort of play more with tortured heroes or tortured characters because, you know, it's historical and they don't have to go see a psychologist all the time, like in the historical books. So <laughs> you can kind of, see, kind of have these very dark, broody heroes. So I can first- really torture them. I know. And so I do love a lot of things about historicals, except for the ballrooms and the potted palms. So my first book tonight is Firelight, Darkest London, number one by Kristen Callahan. And if you uh, enjoy books that sort of have um, kind of a gothic feeling, some very faint sort of Phantom of the Opera vibes because the hero wears a mask, um, this book is for you. It takes place in 1880s London. This book is about Miranda. And Miranda is um, one of a few different sisters. And Miranda isn't doing so great because she has this kind of horrifying secret that has caused some issues for her family and the family business in the past. And so now she's trying to, you know, their circumstances have changed rather significantly. And she's trying to figure out like what to do to kind of assist with that. Well, before she can really like figure things out, she gets a proposal of marriage from the very secretive Benjamin Archer. And he's the sort of masked sort of enigma who, you know, she doesn't really know much about, but her, her, um, she is told by her father that she must marry him. And so there's this wedding that takes place and Miranda goes from her home with her sisters to, you know, Archer's very palatial home. And it's just sort of weird. You know, he won't, she can't ever see him without the mask. And like, sometimes he's attentive and sometimes he's very cold. She gets left alone a lot. She just sort of feels very at sixes and sevens. And then all of a sudden, like these murders begin occurring with some of the older members of upper class society. And it's very confusing to her about like, what is going on in this, in this world. And I really, you know, I feel like I should give you a lot more background, but I don't want to spoil anything about this book. Um, it's, it's quite long. It's, it's very slow burn. Um, and I would say that this is, um, as far as I know, this is Kristen Callahan's first book. So I do feel at times the pacing is a little inconsistent. Sometimes you have all this amazing action and sometimes it just feels like the book is sort of like 
moving at this very languid pace. Um, but this book introduces the darkest London world um, that includes some steampunk elements, that includes um, some other creatures of lore. And so this book is like vitally important to the series. And I love the romance between Miranda and Archer. I love getting to know her sisters a little bit more, um, Poppy and um, Daisy, and just kind of the relationship the three of them have. Um, this book is just really lovely and really great. And again, it is Firelight, Darkest London, number one. It's a completed series, by the way, if that um, is important to you. Um, I love knowing when a series is completed. Um, there are seven books. It's Firelight, Darkest London, number one. And the author is Kristen, the amazing and fabulous Kristen Callahan. She now writes contemporaries, but oh, how I wish she'd go back to writing her steampunk historicals because they were something extra special. And I love them so very much. This book sounds really good. I'm definitely going to really check good. it out. So my next book is A Stitch in Time. A Stitch in Time, book one by Kelly Armstrong. So our main character's name is Bronwyn. And as a child, she used to go and visit um, her, I think it was her great aunt at Thorn Manor. And she still loved going to this place. And there were so many places that she could like kind of explore and she discovered in her room that she had at the manor this like kind of like a time slip, like an area where she would end up in another time period. And in this other time period, we meet William Thorne. And of course, it's taking place at Thorne Manor. Thorne Manor. And it's about, um, it's in 1800s. And they had like this great relationship. Um, they met when they were really young and they got this kind of, their relationship kind of developed as time went on. And when she was about, I think it was about 15, um, something happens and she no longer goes to Thorn Manor. And so we fast forward about 20 years and her great aunt has passed away and she has inherited Thorn Manor. She returns to Thorn Manor. She's thinking that she's going to get it ready to sell. So she wants to go check it out, see how it is and all this stuff. And she checks out the place and she's looking around and it's this old Victorian mansion. And there's all these like the, just the descriptions make you really get into the gothic mood. Um, and then she ends up in her old bedroom. So in the beginning of the night, she starts out like in her aunt's, like the master bedroom, because she thinks, well, my aunt's not around. This is my house now. So I'm going to start sleeping. I don't have to sleep in my old bedroom. Well, something happens and she gets kind of scared by something. And she ends up sleeping in her other bedroom. And she time slips and she ends up showing up like in William's time period. And William is very upset because Bronwyn's been gone for 20 years. So as far as he knows, she just decided that 
he was no longer worth her time. So he's just got this whole grudge against her. So as time goes on, like she goes back and forth between her this ta- her regular time period and William's time period. And they start to kind of get through the issues that they have. Like she explains that something happened in her family that caused her not to be able to return to Thorn Manor. And so he realizes that it wasn't that she didn't want to be there. It's that she couldn't be there. So he kind of gets over his grudge against her and they start getting like rekindling their friendship, which then starts rekindling their love for one another. Well, meanwhile, Bronwyn, when she's in her own time period, we meet some ghosts. There's different ghosts that are haunting Thorn Manor. And as the book goes along, we realize that there's a connection between the ghosts in her time period and some of the scandals that have happened in William's time. So she sets out to figure out, to learn more about the ghosts and to try and figure out like how to kind of help them with their issues and also to see, like to learn more about William and to see if there's a place for her in his time period. I don't really like ghosts that much, but I didn't really find that. I felt like the ghosts were just there. There were there were very much characters. They weren't just like spooky ghosts. Like they actually had a purpose. So for me, I didn't actually mind the ghostly atmosphere, like the ghostly aspects of this book. Um, I loved the description of like the moors and the description of like the architecture of the home and like the different parts of the different um, of the two time periods. I loved learning about the horses that um, William was raising because I love horses. Um, So I definitely would recommend this book. The next books in the series don't focus on Bronwyn um, and Will. Um, They actually look at other characters that you kind of get a glimpse of in um, this book. So this is A Stitch in Time, A Stitch in Time, a book one, and it's by Kelly Armstrong. And I loved this book. It's out in October. Yes. So my next book has no gothic feel and (laughs) also doesn't have any paranormal. So this is A Lady for a Duke Mm. by Alexis Hall. I love Alexis Hall. Um, My introduction to his work was Rosaline Palmer Takes the Cake. And I was really intrigued to see how he would do writing a historical um, just because like Rosaline Palmer was just so like light and fun and tropey. And from the description of A Lady for a Duke, it looked like, you know, that one would be sort of the opposite. And so I kind of wondered, you know, how I would like it. Well, I loved it pretty much from the very beginning of the book. So this is the story of a trans woman who lived the first part of her life as a man. 
and hated pretty much every minute of it. She was born into a male body and just never really felt like she fit. So when she went and fought at Waterloo and was presumed dead, she took this as the opportunity to reinvent herself and actually live as the person that she always believed herself to be. So we meet her as Viola and she is living with her brother and his wife who took the title that would have been hers had she stayed you know, living as a man. And she's kept her secret. You know, her brother obviously knows who she really is, but a lot of other people don't. They, they believe that she's just like a, a distant relation. She's like the companion of her brother's wife. And that, this is working pretty well for Viola. She's actually able to live as a woman and she's learning all the things that she wanted to learn about being her authentic self. But there's one thing that makes all of this really hard, and that is the loss of her best friend, who is Justin, the Duke of Greasewood. Justin was fighting at Waterloo with Viola, and he believes that his best friend died there. And this believed death has taken a huge toll on him. He blames himself for what happened. He like, feels so much survivor's guilt for you know, having come home alive while his friend did not. And it's been a few years now since this happened. And he has come back to his, his family home. And he's just kind of brooding and you know, feeling horrible. Well, Viola's sister-in-law decides that this is like enough and she's going to travel to his home, she and Viola, and they are going to bring him out of what she considers to be just like his, his funk. Viola <laughs> does not think this is a good idea. Um, <laughs> like she's not sure how this is going to go. How is she going to interact with him and deal with him? Like knowing that you know, she knows that they have this history, but he does not know. And so she's not sure how to like make that okay. But she also hates the fact that he is grieving the loss of his friend so much. And she feels responsible for this in a way. Um, so they, they go to the Gracewood estate and slowly Viola and Gracewood begin spending time together. And Gracewood begins to have feelings for Viola just as she does for him. But the truth of her actual identity is kind of standing between them. I feel like there were some very obvious places that this book could have gone. And I, I loved that it did not go there. Um, you know, there are so many stereotypes that could have been explored here and they were not. And I am grateful for that with like, every ounce of my being. I love that Viola, you know, feels badly for how what happened affected Gracewood, but she never turns that on herself and like regrets what she's done. She knows that what she did is the only thing she could have done given, you know, the hell that she was living every day in a body that didn't fit her. 
And I love that we were not made to like see her feel bad about that. She wishes things could have been different. She wishes that, you know, Greece would, could have known the truth sooner than he does, but never does she think like that she should have made a different choice for herself. This is a dark and, and heavy book in places, but such a phenomenal romance that deals with a topic that a lot of people would like to pretend just didn't exist in, in <laughs> historical times. And I love Alexis Hall for shining some light on it in a way that makes it feel like appropriate for the time, but also that says, you know, hey, queer people have existed for centuries and it's time that the world kind of recognized this. If you haven't read this, I highly recommend it. It is A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall. And it's one of Sarah's top books of 2022 that she's read. Oh God, mine too. It is. Yeah, she just could not say enough good things about it. So it's definitely oh. on my TBR. It is incredible in like every, every way. My second book this evening is The Siren of Sussex, Bells of London, Yay! number one, I know, by Mimi Matthews. And I have so many things like that I want to say about this book. I picked it up, honestly, because I needed another book for this episode and nothing was really catching my interest. And so I thought, okay, well, I've read some Mimi Matthews before and it's fine. But then I read a bunch of reviews. And let me tell you, friends, sometimes reviews are like the best thing if you're not sure if you want to read a book. Because if people are like naysaying the book and everything that they're complaining about are aspects of a book that you find quite delightful, it yes. sort of pushed me into reading this book. And I, I didn't know. I didn't know what I've been missing by not reading this book since it came out in January. So this book is about Evelyn Maltravers and Evelyn, you know, she has a bit of a problem because her older sister, who was supposed to kind of secure the family fortune um, for the rest of her younger sisters, um, came to London for a season. And instead of making a really advantageous match, she created a bunch of scandal. And so it's it's been three years since her sister was in London and now Evelyn has to try and, you know, repair what happened to give her younger sisters a chance to, you know, have a better life than they would if she did not make a good match. And Evelyn, you know, she isn't like super like overjoyed to do this. She's sort of in her mind, a very plain young woman. Um, she's not really, she knows that you know, going to London and trying to make a splash, like in the ballrooms of London, she's just going to fade into the background there. She doesn't have enough to recommend her enough flair to, to get the attention that she needs to make a really good match. But where she does shine is as an equestrian and by riding horseback in Rotten Row with this group of women called Horsebreakers who did some really beautiful horseback riding in very amazing riding habits. She feels like this is going to be the way that she's going to get noticed because gosh darn it, she is better as a rider than any of the women who are currently there being admired by society. But in order to pull this off, 
she needs a really special writing habit that really kind of showcases who she is on the back of her beautiful Andalusa stallion, Andalusian, I'm sorry. And um, so she goes to a tailor shop because what I learned about um, (laughs) fashion, because Mimi Matthews is amazing about including information about Victorian fashion in her books. And what I learned is that back then tailors were the ones that made women's riding habits. You didn't go to a dressmaker for that. That surprised me. It did me too. I did not know that. I didn't either. And so she goes to this, you know, well-known tailor where the most famous of the horse breakers gets her habits. And the elderly gentleman tailor said, basically took a look at her and said, no, I won't make habits for you. You're a blue stocking. Thank you. Have a nice day. There's the door. And Evelyn is just crushed. She's like, oh no, like, what do I do? Where do I go? And just as she's about to leave the shop, there's been this deep voice speaking from the curtain behind the curtain in the back areas of the shop. And, and he steps out and he's this very attractive, dark, handsome man um, named Ahmed. And he says to her after they talk a bit that, you know, maybe he might make her a habit, but she basically needs to audition. She has to go ride in the morning at 5 a.m. before fashionable yeah. society is about. And, you know, she has to go. Yeah. Right. Gross. Um, She has to go basically audition because if she doesn't look beautiful enough in the way that she rides her horse, you know, because he's trying to make a splash for himself. So he anyway needs to see her ride. Well, Ahmed is. um, He is uh, his his mother is Indian and his father is British. And so he, he spent the first 15 years of his life in India until he moved to um, England with his aunt and his cousin. And, you know, he hasn't ever really felt as though he fits any place. In India, he was sort of looked upon as different because of his British father. And in London, he is looked down on and treated badly because of his Indian status. And so he wants to be a dressmaker. He wants to make a huge splash. And after watching Evelyn, he feels as though she might be able to help him achieve that dream. And so they form, after a series of things, they form a partnership that they will, you know, kind of, that will benefit them both. He will make her clothing. She will model his clothing. And then they can kind of both get what they want. She a titled, you know, husband with money and he, his own dressmaking shop. Now things don't always go according to plan and what neither of them intended to happen was first being very um, attracted to each other, but then also actually falling in love. And during this time, this was very much not done at all. Um, You know, what Mimi Matthews did in this book was really highlight um, the sort of class and systemic racism issues that were very much alive and well in London in the 1860s. And, you know, Ahmed does not feel that the stigma based on, you know, his birth and his class, he doesn't feel as though that can be overcome. And, you know, and then Evelyn is just sort of in this place where she needs to do things for familial obligation, but her heart is calling her in a different direction. 
So Mimi Matthews is an author who writes um, lovely historicals without one ounce of sex scene anywhere. And I'm someone that typically prefers um, not gratuitous sort of sex scenes, but sexy times on the page because I often feel as though it sort of advances a couple's um, sort of relationship um, in a very intimate way. And let me tell you, this woman didn't write one sex scene in this whole book. And it was one of the most sexually fraught uh, books with the most sexual tension I've ever read in my life because I didn't know until I read this book that um, being measured for clothing could be sexy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't know that, you know, thinking of the way that fabrics would drape um, a person could be sexy. And she had some readers who objected to the fact that there was sexual tension in her proper romance. She had readers, <laughs> I know, and she had readers who objected vociferously to the fact that she included this systemic racism and the way that Ahmed was treated on the daily in this book. And to all of those people, I say, put down your pearls and pick up a good book that actually truly is so deeply emotional and vibrant and vivid and beautiful and important. And I loved it so much. I could keep talking about it for another 20 minutes. So I will stop now. But um, this book was very important. I think um, if you like historicals, even if you're someone who typically likes um, on page um, sexy times, I think this book will still make you happy. This again is um, The Siren of Sussex, Bells of London, number one by Mimi Matthews. And the next book comes out in October. And I can't wait because it has some Beauty and the Beast vibes, and we all know that's my favorite. So there we go. There's, there's horses in this one. I will be reading this one. So my next book is To Catch a Raven, Yay. Women Who Dare, book three, and it's by Beverly Jenkins. So this is actually my first book I'm pretty sure that I've read of hers and I loved it so I'm definitely going to be checking out book one and two so our main character's name is Raven Morrow and Raven's family are grifters they have kind of made their living grifting while also kind of doing menial jobs so when we first join Raven she's actually a housekeeper at somebody's mansion. They have been approached by this, I'm going to call her suspicious because you kind of get this, there's this kind of air of suspicion that is kind of cloaked over her from the start. The first she approaches the Raven's mom and she tells her mom that her family needs to work with her mom's former beau. So we that this is where we meet the Steele family. So it's a has um a father and son. I can't remember what the father's name is, but the son's name is Braxton Steele. Um and the father is asking Braxton to take his place in this. Um Braxton Braxton father used to do art forgery that was kind of his specialty back in the day 
And Braxton's kind of surprised to learn this because he didn't actually know this about his father. So his father has gotten out of the life. So Braxton's father is approached by this detective woman who tells him that she, she would like him to go and work with the Moreau family and to retrieve the stolen Declaration of Independence. So the fancy thing about this is that it is kind of written on some kind of, I think it's sheepskin or something like that. And it was stolen at some point by somebody. And so she wants Braxton's family and the Murrow family to work together to infiltrate this place where this, like the mansion of where this Declaration of Independence is presumed to be located. And so the father is, she, he knows that it's going to be too hard for him to do it just based on different things. So he asks Braxton to take his place. And Braxton is like, I don't really know what I'm like. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what you're getting me into. But then his mo- his father kind of explains to him that the detective has threatened to throw him into jail. Like if he doesn't, like if this doesn't happen and they don't retrieve it, then she's going to like blow the whistle on him and he's just going to get in a lot of trouble. So Braxton agrees to do it. And then we go and he meets Raven and her family. And Raven's mom used to be kind of lovers with Braxton's father. And so they have a relationship and it's really neat to watch their relationship rekindle. Um, And so Raven isn't so sure that he wants, she wants to do this. But again, the family has, as similar to Braxton's family, has been given this ultimatum. So she knows that she has no choice. So she works with Braxton. They have this really like, it's a very much an enemies to lovers because they, they're so witty. And so like, they have the funniest kind of like banter between one another because she doesn't want to do it. And she knows that he doesn't want to do it. And they just want to, don't want to be anywhere near, near each other. But then as they're like, kind of get to know each other, they start kind of realizing there's a little bit of, um, attraction and they don't want this because well why would they want that and so it's kind of interesting to watch their relationship develop they infiltrate this estate they're hired on as a husband and wife so they're able to work together so they're doing that and it's really neat to watch the Murrow family and how they all kind of step up and they each have their own pieces of the puzzle that they do like it's not just Raven left to do everything she's got her family kind of working with her so I thought it was so neat to watch the family work together so if you want to see if they retrieve it and if you want to learn what the suspicious inspector is all about then you will have to check out to catch a Raven women who dare book three and it's by Beverly Jenkins this just came in for me um, at the library a couple of days ago, so I am super excited for it. 
It was really I read, good. Like, I really liked it. I read the first book in this series and liked it quite a lot. And then just, you know, sometimes the TBR gets a little unwieldy and I just haven't picked up <laughs> the next two books yet. But um, the first one was very well written. So my next book is the first book I've ever read by Cat Sebastian. And I'm not sure why it's taken me this long to pick up a Cat Sebastian book. Um, I guess because, as Stacy said, the TBR does get a little unwieldy sometimes. <laughs> so this is The Queer Principles of Kit Webb, London Highwayman, book one by Cat Sebastian. And our main character is, of course, Kit Webb. I could have used this for like books with names in the title. Um, <laughs> but Kit Webb is a reformed highwayman. He decided that he'd had enough of his life as a thief. And so he just left that life behind. He bought a coffee shop and he's, oh. yeah. And he's living in this like small, you know, kind of part of London where he's kind of like he still hears a lot about the people that he used to work with. And there's a part of him that misses that life. He kind of feels like maybe living the straight life isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's kind of mundane and boring, but he also knows that it's safer. So he spends time in his in his shop. And he figures that eventually, you know, he'll get used to kind of the, the humdrum way of life. But then Percy comes in to his shop and Percy knows who Kit Webb used to be. And he has come to see him with a very specific proposition in mind. He wants Kit to help him steal this book that used to belong to his mother and this book has information in it that Percy needs. And there's a whole reason why he needs this that I can't really tell you because it would spoil a lot of what goes on here. But they need to, he needs to steal this book back. Well, Kit is intrigued, but he feels like helping Percy do this would just sort of get him back into a life that, you know, he left behind for a reason. So he's not really into it. So he decides that he'll compromise. He won't actually participate in the stealing of the book, but he will teach Percy all the things that he needs to know in order to pull this off. And so this, of course, means that they're spending quite a bit of time together. They're getting to know each other in ways that neither of them really expected. And of course, they are also beginning to have feelings for one another. But how does this work when... Percy is an aristocrat and Kit is, you know, a retired highwayman who, if people knew who he really was, you know, would be in quite a bit of trouble. And then something goes terribly wrong with this plan that they're cooking up to steal back this book and suddenly everything is in peril. This is a really fun book. Like if you like the idea of, of thieves and highwaymen and heists, then this is a very, very cool book wrapped up in a really hot romance. Um, both Percy and Kit 
are relatable characters that you you're able to root for as you're reading, even though, you know, you may not really think that in real life you should go and be stealing things. Um, it's, it's just done so well that you find yourself really happy to go along with this plan that they're cooking up. So this is The Queer Principles of Kit Webb, London Highwayman, book one by Kat Sebastian. And the second book in this series, which is The Perfect Crimes of Marion Hayes, um, just came out like earlier this year. And it's definitely on my list of things to read, as are most of the other things written by Kat Sebastian. So I love historicals where we have an aristocrat and then someone from sort of, for lack of a classier way to say it, like the underbelly of society. And somehow they, like, that is like my favorite. I I don't know if it's even like a trope. I don't know. My third book is something that I love so much that I am now on my second read through of the series because it makes me so happy. I know. It makes me so happy in my heart. And this author is just sort of like this goddess. And I just, I don't feel like enough people pay homage to who she is and how well she writes and the worlds that she builds. And who am I talking about? You might be wondering. I'm talking about Beck McMaster. And I'm going to be telling you about Kiss of Steel, London Steampunk number one by Beck McMaster. So as I said earlier, I really do, um, I like historicals that have some sort of like paranormal element or like steampunk element. It just makes the whole sort of proper Victorian sort of world even more interesting with all of like the steam coaches and, you know, like automatons doing things. And I don't know, it just adds like extra. So this book is about Honoria. And Honoria Todd is having kind of a rough few months. Um, She was living, yes. And she was living this very sort of nice life with her um, scientist father and siblings in um, in a nice home that was um, being funded by a patron um, as, as her father worked for him. And so she kind of grew up, you know, with the finer things in life, but also helping her father um, with some of the things that he was doing, some of his experiments and different things that he was working on. Um, also that her younger sister and younger brother could have this amazing sort of pampered aristocratic life. And then six months ago, everything sort of went awry and her father um, was killed, but he managed to get his his three children um, away from the house. And so Honoria has run to the one place where she feels that she and her siblings will be safe. And that is Whitechapel, the rookery. So let's say the slums of London for those who don't know what that is. Now, in addition to the fact that, you know, this family worked for sort of um, a a titled gentleman, um, This book is interesting in this world because aristocrats, aristocratic men, I should say, um, are given a gift by another family member around the time they turn 15. And basically they're given the craving virus, which makes them stronger and, you know, just sort of 
more than human, um, almost vampiric, if you will. And so only men and only upper class men really can have this, this gift. Um, women are not allowed because they're so hysterical. They might just not be able to handle the craving virus and what it does. And of course, we're not going to give this fine gift to people who we do not feel are deserving of it because that's what sets the blue bloods apart from the humans is that they're sort of in their upper echelon of society up on this huge pedestal while the rest of London, you know, they have to like pay um, like tax to them by giving certain amounts of blood every year so that we can keep these, you know, uh, blue bloods, you know, well-fed. Um, but somehow years ago, someone got the craving virus who shouldn't have, and his name is Blade. And he is now the king of Whitechapel, the king of the rookery. Um, so he's down there like overseeing all the thieves and all the, you know, the people of this area and also keeping all of the echelon out of this area of London and keeping his streets, you know, free of the blue bloods. And things are not going well for Honoria. She, uh, they barely have any money. Her younger brother, Charlie is very ill. And she thinks all that she can do is to kind of ask, um, blade for help. And it doesn't quite go as she anticipates. Um, she ends up starting to teach him some sort of like etiquette lessons that he sort of half-assedly participates in because he wants to be around Honoria for reasons that we don't necessarily understand at first. And so the two of them, this is a very enemies to lovers vibe. Um, this, this series is doing a lot of setting up the world. This, this series is a five book series. Um, and then there is a spinoff series called the uh, Blue Blood Conspiracy is, is a spinoff, but this is um, London steampunk. And in this world, you know, like um, the, the Queen of England is human and she's not Queen Victoria, but her husband is a blue blood and has some pretty shady ways of making sure that the blue bloods are kind of taking over and that humans are being kept in their place. Um, there are some other people in this book that aren't precisely human. Um, there's a lot of conspiracy going on that, you know, Blade and Honoria might have the ability to sort of, sort of solve some of it. But also there is a vampire running amok through the streets of London. And vampires are people who have the blue blood virus whose craving levels have gotten too high. And so they just run amok through the streets of London, indeterminately killing and drinking blood and just wreaking havoc. Um, and usually when someone's uh, blood craving level gets to a certain point, they're actually um, killed. But this vampire was not and now is causing problems. So I know that I'm like speaking of this book in a very jumbled way, but it's really hard to talk about it without giving away too much of the plot. But if you like enemies to lovers, if you like steampunk, if you like sort of like an alternate Victorian era London, um, you have to read this series. It is just so great. And this again is Kiss of Steel, London Steampunk, book one by the amazing Beck McMaster. Yes. So my last book tonight is A Murder in Time. 
Kendra Donovan, book one by Julie McWain. So our main character, as you can probably guess, is Kendra Donovan. And when we join the book, Kendra Donovan, she is an FBI agent. And normally she works behind like the computer and she does a lot of like the more analyst kind of work. But she's been asked to join this task force to find this like serial killer that they've been looking for and that they've nobody's been able to find. So one thing I will tell you about Kendra before we get too far is Kendra is very much a genius. Um, she's very young and she's like, I think she's like 26 or something. And she's been part of the FBI since they were, she was 23. Like normally this is not really something that happens. So that's one thing we learn about her. We also learn that her parents, she's kind of estranged from them. And we learn that her and her siblings were part of like an ex- kind of like an experiment where they use fancy genetic testing and stuff like that to create these extremely intelligent, like genius level children. So that's kind of like what we know about her and her family, at least from the start. So Kendra is part of this task force um, and she breaks the code and she figures out where this person is located that they're looking for. So she sets off with the team to go and um, catch this person and things go horribly wrong. Like pretty much most of her coworkers are like killed. A lot of the team does not make it out. And her herself, she ends up getting badly injured. So we rejoin her in the hospital and we get to watch her go through physiotherapy. And um, we get to see a little bit of interaction between her and her estranged father, which was, I I found it so hard to watch just because it really bothered me how cold he was towards her. so she I know I was so upset I was so glad that we did not and this is not a spoiler but we don't we don't get to see her mother in this book I'm very very glad after meeting her father (laughs) so she works really 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 hard to get back to fighting shape and the FBI, like her FBI supervisor has told her that it's time to come back. So she tells them that she'll be coming back in about a week. But we learn that this is not actually what she's planning. She is planning on heading over to London to go after one of the bad guys from the situation where her, like where her team was killed. So what the FBI did was they made a, an agreement with one of the was one of the suspects that if he told them everything they wanted to know, and if he kept telling them what they want to know, then they would just let him, let him go free. But she does not she does not agree with this whatsoever, and she's so upset by this decision that she's decided to go after him herself. 
So she sets up everything and she has all these like fake IDs and she like makes this false trail that her boss will follow or she at least hopes her boss will follow. And she goes to the, um, the mansion or at least a state of this person. He's hosting a party and she gets into the party as kind of one of the workers. And so she gets into his office, his private office, and she like sets up this way that she's going to kill him. And then she hides. And then he comes into the room and she's not sure, but like somebody's coming in with him and she's like, crap, like I don't want the other person to die. Like they're, they're innocent and it's just meant for him. Like I'm going to have to go to plan B. But she stays where she is because she starts hearing things that make her wonder that if there's something else going on. Well, he ends up getting assassinated and then she has to now escape the assassin. And so she disappears into this secret passage within the walls of this office. And she's like running because she's afraid. And then she goes up these stairs and then this weird feeling happens. And then all of a sudden she comes back out of this. She feels fine again. And she like gets stands up because she's like, what the heck? And she keeps running because she knows she's got to get away. So she runs up to the top of the stairs and starts banging on this door. And then all of a sudden this person opens and like, she doesn't know this person. Like she'd never seen this person. Just when, oh, maybe it's just a staff, whatever. But then when she walks out, of this like passageway it's like there's candlelight and like she's kind of like what the I don't understand like things are so strange and as she kind of walks around and she kind of talks to people she starts to realize that she's not in her own time period and so she's kind of like okay well I'm just gonna keep going along with things and kind of figure it out So a lot of the book is her figuring out how to work within this new kind of existence that she's found herself into while also trying to figure out like how to get back home because like this is not where she wants to be. Um, We get to meet the Duke and we also get to meet his, I think it's his nephew. Yes, his nephew. His nephew, Alec. And Kendra and Alec start beginning to have this attraction to one another. So there's a nice, there's a really, really nice romance that develops between them, or at least is starting to develop between them. And she starts to get to know some of the staff. Um, She, at first, I thought it was funny, her first job that she takes on. So like the Duke kind of knows or something like not quite right, but he, he's kind of an easygoing guy and he's, he's willing to kind of go with the flow. So he goes with the flow and he signs her to be a lady's maid. And it was so funny. Like he, she is the most horrible lady's maid you could ever meet. Like she ends up like cursing at the ladies and she's like telling them to shut up and like, cause they're kind of whining. They're very entitled young women and she tells them to like shut up and just deal with it and to get out of her face and like it's so it was so funny like she is struggling to kind of 
get into the feel of what she's supposed to do. Um, then there ends up being some murders that happen and she starts to investigate. And like the men are kind of like, what is going on? Like women don't do these things. Like, and she's saying all these things and they're kind of like, huh. So she's got to figure a way to work within the society, but also she's not willing to kind of step back and let things go. Cause she doesn't, she wants the, whoever's killing these women to be found. So I really, I liked this book. Like I, I thought it was really neat and I'm really looking forward to seeing where it goes from here. This is a murder in time. Kendra Donovan book one. And it's by Julie McWayne. I loved this because it's like one of those things where the first book starts it off. And yeah. so it like really sets the scene. And then as the series goes on, you see like the relationship building between Kendra and Alec, but you also see kind of Kendra trying to figure out like, you know, is this where she's going to stay? Like, does she want to go back home like to her own time? Like, what would that mean for her relationship? Yeah. Like, it's just, it has so many cool things of like being a time travel kind of romance, but also like the mystery elements are very well done here. Yep. I just, I really, really liked this. All right. So my last book is actually a series. This is the Sins of the Cities series by KJ Charles. This is a trilogy and it, each book focuses on a different couple, but the sort of overarching themes of the book continue, like of the first book continue throughout the series. And so it's kind of a hard thing to talk about, like just the first book. But the first one is An Unseen Attraction. And again, it's Sins of the Cities, book one by KJ Charles. And in this book, we meet Clem. He is the keeper of this lodging house. And he's very, very quiet. He's a little quirky. Like he just has all these odd mannerisms that a lot of people don't really understand. Um, he leads kind of a quiet, like retiring life. He rents a room to this man named Raleigh. And Raleigh has a lot of secrets, but he and Clem spend a lot of time together and they really start to get to know each other in a way that feels like very deep and meaningful to both of them. But neither of them is really sure like what this, this closeness means for the two of them. Like they're, they're living in a time when it's not acceptable to be a man in love with another man. And so they're kind of just each trying to like pass the other off as just like a really good friend, but there's a whole bunch of tension that exists like between, you know, between them that's kind of beneath the surface. And as the reader, like you are super aware of it. And you kind of wonder like if, you know, each of them is aware of like the other's feelings. Things come to a head when someone is murdered and left on the doorstep of Clem's lodging house. 
And in order to figure out who not only the, the person is who is dead, but like who killed them, Clem and Raleigh join forces and also start spending time with a group of other men who may or may not be in a similar situation to theirs, not so much with the murdered bodies, but with their feelings for other men. This is kind of a, like if you think about romantic suspense, but moving it back into like Victorian times, you've got the sins of the city series. These are very, very hot romances um, with intrigue, with found family. Um, I think the second book is my favorite in the series, and it's about a reporter who is trying to like blow the whistle on fake spiritualists during this era. And I just, I loved that book so much. But really this whole series is excellent because it has just so many themes that we love in in romance. I love found family. I love people who are learning to kind of come into their own power and understand that who they are is perfectly okay, even if society isn't nuts about it. K.J. Charles is one of these authors who writes in a variety of historical like subgenres. Some of them have like a little bit of paranormal aspect thrown in. Some of them do feel more like romantic suspense like this series does. Um, she has a couple of like heist novels that make me super happy. If you've never read a K.J. Charles, I highly, highly recommend her. And this series I think is the perfect introduction to who she is as an author. This is not a series that you can read out of order. Um, I, I did by mistake and I was very confused um, going in. So I had to go back and like read them in the proper order, which helped a lot. So please don't do what I did and start with an unseen attraction because that is the actual beginning of this series. So it's an unseen attraction, Sins of the Cities, book one by K.J. Charles. I've been meaning to read her books. I just haven't done it yet. So my final book this evening is Portrait of a Scotsman, A League of Extraordinary Women, number three, by Evie Dunmore. And this book is about Hattie Greenfield. She's a banking heiress in London. And, you know, she just kind of wants to be seen for herself. She is taking classes at Oxford to be an artist. She's painting, um, but she feels as though she's not given the same respect as her male counterparts. She just, you know, she kind of just um, wants something else that I had, can't remember. Oh, she you know, wants to kind of be part of like a noble cause. And so she's part of the suffragist movement um, in London. And she wants to marry a Lord who's, you know, very like, who's a, a gentleman, but, you know, emphasis on the gentle. And she kind of wants like a Mr. Bingley. Um, I don't read Jane Austen, but I guess he's sort of like a milk toast, um, wimpity, gentlemanly man. Um, so she kind of has this whole thing and, you know, she comes from this very boisterous, uh, very intellectual family, but they always have kind of viewed Hattie as, you know, poor sweet Hattie who just, we love her, but she's kind of flighty. 
Um, and she doesn't have our brains, unfortunately. And this is because if, if Hattie were alive today, she would be diagnosed with some specific learning disabilities in the area of written expression and um, possibly with some numbers and issues with that. But, you know, she wasn't. She was, you know, born back in the 1800s when people just thought you were dumb if you, you know, moved your letters around when you were writing. And as a result, her family doesn't expect as much from her. Well, Hattie, you know, she's living this very cosseted existence, but sometimes she just has to escape it for a little while to do the things that matter to her. And one of the things that really matters to her is to sneak away from her bodyguard to go to um, this private showing of um, all of this art at a private home. And she gets to this private home, walks inside, and unbeknownst to her, is believed to be um, a lady of ill repute and is taken in Ooh. to meet the, uh, the owner of the home, but not so she can see his artwork. Oh dear. Well, of course, you know, Miss Hattie Greenfield is not happy with the way that she is treated in this home and she leaves in high dudgeon. Fair. But, uh, indeed. But later, you know, later, um, so, but while she's at this house, self-made um, man, Lucian Blackstone, recognizes her as the daughter of his business rival. And right then kind of sees opportunity to advance his own career um, because he's very intelligent. He, you know, has done a lot of like buying of railroads and mines and things. But, you know, there's only so far you can go as someone who's like clawed your way up from humble beginnings to, you know, sort of the pinnacle of, of wealth and all of that without some sort of, you know, clout from somebody or some sort of support from someone um, who is a more respected sort of member of the elite. So through a series of contrivances, Lucian decides that he's going to kind of use Hattie to get where he needs to go so that he can continue moving on up the ladder. And Hattie is a very unwitting sort of person in this whole thing and is caught with Lucian in a very compromising position by a huge swath of society. And so Ooh. there's no choice but for her to marry him. And he's this big hulking dark man and he's not a Mr. Bingley. He's not a sensitive, gentle lordling who's going to, you know, just treat her like fine China and, you know, behave in a very foppish way. He's not any of these things. And yet, and yet she has to marry him. Well, Hattie, you know, she's a very sort of optimistic person and she tries to find hope in many things. And so she tries to find ways to connect with her brooding husband who could care less about her romantic notions. Well, then a few days after they're married, they go to Scotland for reasons that I will not divulge. And while there, Hattie begins to learn more about her husband and, and to kind of see behind the sort of dark and broody facade to who he actually is. And he begins to appreciate all that Hattie has to offer. This book is interesting. It takes place um, in the last 20 or so years of the 19th century. Um, you know, it talks about the suffragist movement. 
it talks about how, you know, women are trying to, some are trying to kind of change the way that they're viewed, change their circumstances. And some like working class women feel like all the suffragist stuff is just not for them because they actually have to work and put food on the table and do all the things. And they can't do that, you know, with, with the way that the upper class women look at being um, sort of in this suffragist movement. Um, I, I really did like Lucian Blackstone, although he was kind of um, a jerk in some ways and wasn't really worried about how his actions would impact Hattie. Um, I sort of, I've read this book twice now. I loved it the first time I read it and I wasn't quite as enchanted the second time, but I still think it's a great story. Um, the series focuses on a group of friends who are all part of the suffragist movement. And um, I did not read the series in order, full disclosure. And I don't care that I didn't. So, um, you know, if you want to read a book that's very interesting, that's about differences in class and, you know, women working to um, sort of be counted um, and to have a voice in matters of government, in matters of equality, this would be a book for you. This is Portrait of a Scotsman, A League of Extraordinary Women, number three by Evie Dunmore. When Min was on the podcast a couple of years ago, um, she talked about Evie Dunmore. And ever since then, she's been on my TBR pile. Um, but as with so many things, I have not picked up one of her books yet. So that concludes our look at some historical romances. Thank you to Stacy and to Brooke for participating tonight with so many great historical reads. As always, thanks goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And we thank each and every one of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.